<laughs> so this morning, um, we get to continue on in our series called Rooted in Hope. Rooted in Hope. So what is hope? Such a big question, right? And so we're in this series in 1 Thessalonians entitled, entitled Rooted in Hope. And today we find ourselves in the second to last chapter, chapter four. And we've been journeying through this book for a few weeks now, mining it for reasons to hope in hard times. And the question remains, what is hope? But before we define it, let's consider the context of 1 Thessalonians. So the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians in the city called Thessalonica. And he's writing with a positive message, but they are a people who are under persecution from their fellow countrymen because of their faith in Jesus and his holy way. So Paul is writing with instructions and encouragement and even some clarifications about misunderstandings that they have. And he grounds his instructions and his encouragement and his clarifications in the second coming or the return of Jesus Christ. And the return of Jesus is so critical to his message in this book that he alludes to it uh, in every, at the end of every chapter. And there are five chapters. And so he goes through that. And this is our backdrop. And so I want us to consider as we explore the question, what is hope? So hope is defined from the dictionary as a feeling or of an expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen. A feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. And so expectation and desire, those two words, they they, they jump out uh, out at me, they pop out, and they are central to understanding hope. So when you or someone else expects or desires something, you're looking to the future, right? And you're, you're looking with expectation and the desire to be met. You're not putting your hope in the past or even in the present, but the future, because only in the future can those expectations be met. Well, Paul, he's rooting his instructions and his clarifications and his encouragement for the Thessalonians and for you and I today in the future in the return of Jesus to the earth from the heavenly realm. And it is vital that we lift our eyes from the past and even the current moment to look to the future along with Paul because the basis of our hope is in this future, this return of Jesus to right all wrongs, to heal all diseases, to establish justice and order, and to do more. So our greatest hope and desire should be in the return of King Jesus. And today, from chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul lays out for us a model for living into that hope and what it produces in us personally and through us communally. So if you have your Bibles or you have a device, you can go ahead and open up or turn to or scroll to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But before we get into the word, let's pray. God of all hope, some of us have come in tired and weary from the week. Others of us have arrived today with great joy and refreshed from a weekend of rest. And some of us find ourselves just here with little to no expectation for a move of God. But God, today, we ask that you burst forth 
through your spirit in our hearts and our minds to strengthen us, to increase our hope, and arouse us to your great plans. Lord, help us to celebrate you and your glorious work in our lives. Spirit, teach us from your word now. Amen. So, if you have your Bibles, and I'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to take a peek at verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8. And this morning it will not be on the screen, so if you just want to close your eyes and listen, if you don't have a device to, to read it off of, but just to hear these words, let these words wash over you. Paul writes and says, Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus. That as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification. That you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body and holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. As we also previously told and warned you, verse 7, for God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. That's a key verse. And verse 8, consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. You know, there is hope for growth. That's what those eight verses say. There is hope for growth for you and I. And so these, verse, these eight verses press followers of Christ, you and I, in the direction of continual spiritual growth. Verses 1 through 8 are, they've anchored or been anchored and can be summed up in one phrase from verse 1. You should live and please God as you are doing. Do this even more. Key phrases there, live and please God. And he, he says this, he's encouraging them. And he says, as you're already doing it, but do it even more. And so sometimes we wonder, what is the will of God for our lives? But here it is made clear, sanctification. Now that's a big word. That's a scary word. Maybe, maybe some of you are wondering, what does that even mean? Well, one of the expressed purposes for life of the follower of Christ is to be sanctified. You know, today, uh, we, it's Halloween, right? And so, uh, actually, for the Catholic Church, tomorrow is uh, All Saints Day, where they venerate all the saints. And so, this is where we get Halloween. And so, it's a hallowed eve, right? And so, hallowed uh, and saintly is also connected with holiness or sanctification or being sanctified. And so, I want us to think about this word sanctification because it's a concept that's found throughout the New Testament that we need to think and that we need to be familiar with. So, sanctification is related to the word saint, like I said, and both words have to do with holiness. For something to be holy, it has to be utterly distinctive and separate from anything else. For God to be holy is for him to be totally and completely separate from sin and anything that even 
has the stench of sin. So when we consider sanctification for the follower of Christ, there are two types of sanctification that we must hold close. One is positional sanctification or positional holiness, and stay with me because this goes someplace. And so, and the other is progressive or experiential sanctification. I'm going to explain those. Positional sanctification, this is the status you are gifted with as a follower of Christ, if you trust in him. You were born with a sinful nature, separated from God because of that sinful nature. But when you trusted Jesus with your life, he gifted or imparted you with his perfect holiness. It's like having a robe placed over you of holiness. And in short, when God looks down at you as his beloved, he doesn't see your sin, but he sees the perfect holiness that has been imparted to you by Jesus. That's positional holiness. But then there's progressive or experiential sanctification. It's the concept of uh, uh, for something to be progressive is for it to be continual, maturing, and growing. And so both in 1 Peter and in the book of Leviticus 11.44, it says, be holy as God is holy. And this is his character. So to live in progressive sanctification is to simply grow spiritually. It's the work of God and you, don't miss that, the work of God and you that makes you more and more free from sin and more like Christ in your actual life. There's this preacher from a, a special denomination that I really appreciate called the Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, he's from the 1900s, and me being born in 1990, it's weird to say the 1900s. Um, but A.W. Tozer is this preacher, and he has this quote about holiness that I find really striking. He says, the true Christian ideal is not to be happy, but to be holy. The whole purpose of God in redemption is to make us holy or sanctified and to restore us to the image of God. To accomplish this, he disengages us from earthly ambitions and draws us away from the cheap and unworthy prizes that worldly men set their hearts upon. The cheap and unworthy prizes that worldly men set their hearts upon. You see, sanctification in verses 4 through 6, Paul takes us from the abstract concept of progressive sanctification, and he decides to both address a possible issue for the Thessalonian church and maybe a possible issue, a very modern issue for us today, and he also wants to illustrate what spiritual growth looks like with a couple of exhortations, and they're mainly about sexuality. Sexuality. And so he says in verse 3, he says, keep away from sexual immorality. Verse 4, he says, know how to control your own body in holiness. Don't violate someone else's wife in verse 6. He's talking about adultery or even possibly rape. And so all three of these exhortations are dealing with sexuality. And when sin entered the world, it fractured all parts of the image of God that has been bestowed upon us. And so this includes our sexuality and our sexual desires and those desires aren't bad or sinful in and of themselves, but with our sinful natures, things get twisted. Things get corrupted. It causes our eyes to linger a little longer as we 
lust after someone. It leads us to view things on devices, whether from browsers or social media, that would cause us to blush in polite company. And it leads us to question why we're attracted to who we're attracted to. But I got good news for you. There is hope for growth. There is hope for our wandering eyes. There is hope for us to put our devices down when tempted by tantalizing images. There is hope for those of us who have wrestled with same-sex attraction. And that hope for growth is the third person of the Trinity, none other than the Holy Spirit. Paul says in, in verse 8, Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who what? Gives you the Holy Spirit. When God saves the believer, he endows you with his spirit, which empowers you to live a holy life. He endows you, and then he empowers you. And you won't be perfect. None of us will be and never can be until we meet Jesus and become perfected. But you can progress in holiness through the work of the spirit and your intentional striving. And so I think what can sum up verses 1 through 8 is a little conglomeration of verses 1, 3, and 7. You should live and please God, for this is God's will, your sanctification. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. There is hope for your growth. Verses 9 and 10, let's read them. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to live, to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, we urge you, is another way to say that, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. Paul slightly shifts from the hope for growth from sanctification to a focus on love and to a focus on the hope for shared communal love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says that God is love, meaning that all love is defined off the essence and character of God. In verse 9, Paul says that he doesn't even have to write to the Thessalonian Christians about love because God has taught them about loving one another. He continues on in verse 10 by encouraging them with the fact that they are doing a great job of already loving each other, embracing one another. They're even loving fellow Christ followers throughout their region. And Paul seems to be impressed, and Paul is not easily impressed, okay? But he still writes to them and says, do this, love even more. Notice what he said in verses 1 through 8. He said, do this even more. And then he repeats that again in verse 10. Do this, love in this case, even more. What a challenge to us today. You see, because love is hard. It's sacrificial. It's selfless. It's patient. And it's life-giving. Jesus models it for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it is this demonstration that sets a path forward for us to love one another. Question for you. Think for a moment. 
if there was an unbiased observer assigned to your life, would they characterize your life as one marked by love for fellow believers? Would they look at your goings and your doings and your speech and characterize your life as one marked for love for fellow believers? Because John 13, 35 says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you what? Love one another. In your tribes, you have the perfect opportunity to do this. It's how we display love for each other. And so in your tribes, how have you sacrificed for each other? How have you met one another's needs? Are, now, here at Mission Hills, tribes are the locus not only of mission, but also of community. And so with patience and an, and an intent to care, check in with one another. Listen to one another. Pray for and with each other about joyful things and hard things. Practice love in your tribes. Practice love out in the world. Let's move on to verses 13 through 18. Paul writes, verse 13, this is the part I get excited about. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul's primary purpose for writing verses 13 through 18 was to console and to comfort the Christians in Thessalonica as they were grieving the death of some fellow believers. And the Christian Thessalonians were so upset and sad because they thought that the individuals who had died would somehow be disadvantaged at the return of Jesus. So Paul writes these verses to clarify this misunderstanding. And so Paul wants to give true hope in the midst of grief. You know, many counselors and therapists agree that there are six stages to grief. They are universal, and they are stages, and they aren't necessarily linear, but they can be experienced out of order, uh, out of the order that I'm about to give, and so they can overlap even. And those stages are shock and denial, anger, depression and detachment, dialogue and bargaining, acceptance, and then a return to a meaningful life. Now, it's hard to say what stage or stages the Thessalonian Christians were in in their grief in, of their loss, but I can imagine that they were still experiencing depression from their losses. So Paul writes in verse 13 that they don't have to grieve with no hope, with no expectation. 
He situated this hope in the midst of grief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In verse 14, he writes, he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, we're going to talk about that phrase, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The key words in verse 14 is through Jesus. There's something mysteriously amazing about our union with Christ. Because that's what he's talking about, this union that we have. And here Paul seems to be saying that our union with Christ will lead to our resurrection from the dead. That means one day when we no longer are breathing, that we will have the opportunity to be resurrected, life to be put back into our dead bodies. That's some mysterious stuff. But not only will we as Christ followers be resurrected from the dead, but we'll also return with Christ in the second coming. So there is reunification with fellow followers of Christ who have died at the return of Jesus. And on this Halloween, there's nothing spooky about that. It's only amazing. You know, when my dad, my dad's dad, passed away in 2020, I found myself living in shock and denial until I was able to get home and see his, his lifeless body for myself in the casket. And when I arrived at the funeral, I finally began to cry and as I kind of emotionally ascended to the reality of what had happened, that Papa Edwards was no longer here with me. And so the days following the funeral, I, I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 55 over and over. And it says this, it says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? And these verses would soothe me, and they set my mind to ease. But now as I reread 1 Thessalonians 14, 4, 14, and it says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Amen. I sit with even greater peace that I'll see Papa Edwards again. I'll see Grandma Rose again. And that you'll see the loved ones who have fallen asleep in the Lord again. Friends, there is hope in the midst of grief because the resurrection of Jesus and the return of this same Jesus. You know, hope is rooted in who God is. God is holy. God is love. God is life. Because God is all these things, we can have hope. And so today, if you're here or watching online, and you've never trusted Jesus as the one who died for your sins and was resurrected from the grave, then I offer you hope through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He'll transform your life. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, I offer you hope because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Today, your hope is also rooted in the second coming of Jesus, as much as it is rooted in his first coming. And your response should be the prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would come. God, we got pains, we got aches, we got longings, 
We have confusion. We have disturbances. But Lord, we need you. And so God, we ask that we would have hope in hard times. God, that we would have hope for growth. That we would have hope for shared love. That we would have hope in the midst of grief. That we would have hope at all times. Impress upon our hearts and our minds and our spirits a hopefulness in you. Because you care for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.